Welcome to the Strong for Performance podcast, where we give coaches and consultants practical ideas for taking you to the next level in your business and in your life. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. I interview experts who've walked in your shoes and offer real-world experience that you can apply to your own journey. Welcome to another episode of the Strong for Performance podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I am so delighted and excited to have with me today, Brad Sugars. Brad, welcome to the show. Well, hey, Meredith, it's good to be on here. I finally get to be on your podcast. Well, I am just so excited because I know that you have just got a wealth of information to share with my audience. Uh, Before we get into my questions, though, I want to give them a little bit of information about who you are and why they should also be very excited to listen to you today. Brad is the founder and chairman of a company called Action Coach, and this is the number one global business coaching franchise with a thousand or more, probably more than a thousand today, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Coaches in more than 80 countries around the world. And the whole focus is to help business owners build successful companies, which being a business owner myself for more than 30 years, I really appreciate that you've got that mission to help so many people around the world. Uh, What's fun about Brad and interesting is he's been a serial entrepreneur almost his whole life. He started as a boy, if I remember correctly. And so we'll get him to tell us a little bit about his journey. Uh, And recently, he formed a new company called Adding Zeros for mid-sized companies. And this is based on the five disciplines that he writes about with his co-author in his, I think this is your latest book, right? I know you've got so many. Book number 17, yes. Book number 17. It's called Pulling Profits Out of a Hat. Adding zeros <laughs> to your company isn't magic. I love that title because I read your book and the fact that you're always looking for ways to people for people to add zeros to their businesses is very appealing. And I love the humor and just the, um, the whole analogy throughout the book around magic. So we'll, we'll delve more into some of the parts of the book. But first, let's back up and tell us more about your journey as an entrepreneur? Yeah, look, I I think that, um, I think most of us realize that eventually we have to be entrepreneurs and whether it's because we don't like working for someone else or we just physically uh, can't work for other people. Um, I, for me, you know, I started out as a teenager wanting to make my own money. And uh, I think that as a teenager, it was you could go and get a job but uh, that wasn't the easiest thing to do. Um, but you could always, as a young person, I remember starting at 13 years old, couldn't get a job because you weren't allowed to have a job at 13. You've got to be 15 before you can do that. So I and just had to learn how to... Let me back up. You're originally from Australia, right? Yes, I am Australian. Oh, okay. just so. wanted to to let people know where you started. Yeah, one of those people that the English kicked out because we were too much fun. Um, you know, that's the way the world works. But no, so I've, what I started doing was just starting my own little businesses. And then I got to a point of where I would buy broken companies and fix them. And nowadays I invest in good companies and take them global. That's pretty much all I do these days. So I find companies where I think they're doing a great business. They might have one office or be in one city or one state. And I work at how can I 
do a Ray Kroc as he did with McDonald's and put it on every street corner sort of thing. And so that's really what I aim to do today. Keep working at it from that perspective. And action coach was a byproduct of being an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, when you, when, when you're young and successful in business, people are always asking, well, how did you do it? You know, it's, you can't be successful in business when you're young. There must be some secret source to it type thing. And, you know, the, the old secret of business is there are no secrets. There's just books you haven't read yet. I think that's, that was the truth for me. And I was lucky enough that at age 16, I won the Rotary Youth Leadership Award in my area. And Rotary Club then sent me away for one full week's training on how to be a leader and how to be successful at 16 years old. Oh, which, wow. dang, that make if that doesn't change the course of your life, I don't know what will. So, yeah, definitely put me in the right direction of reading more, studying more and um, yeah, I've always been a, a simple thing. Every solution, uh, to every problem is in a book somewhere or somewhere. I've got to just learn what the solution is. And, you know, most business people, unfortunately, they grow their business to their level of incompetence. And once they run out of ideas then the business can't grow anymore. So, um, that's why I keep learning and keep reading. And, uh, that's why anyone on the podcast subscribe, don't just listen once, subscribe to these, keep, keep doing that. I appreciate the plug. Well, let's go back for a minute to Action Coach. Mm-hmm. How did you go about starting that company and growing it to be the size that it is today? Yeah, it started purely by accident. And um, what I mean by that is people would ask me to speak. And so then people would say, well, because if you're speaking to a group of business people and you're telling them what to do, they'd say, well, can you help me with that? And can you help me with that? And I'm like, no, I'm running my own businesses and I, I'm just doing this speaking thing as for fun. It's, it's sort of, I enjoy it. And you know how sometimes it takes a little while for the light bulb to go off. Well, after enough people were asking me, can you help us? Can you help us? Finally, I sat down and I said, I think I better do a business out of this one. And so I, I would say to people at the end of seminars, listen, well, why don't you just call me and, and, and I'll, I'll coach you through how to do this sort of stuff. Because business coaching didn't exist back then. You were a consultant or, or you went to a training course, but there was no coaching, no structured mentoring programs. And so I started coaching and mentoring. And I think what it took, the first probably two years, it took me that long to get all of my intellectual property down on paper. And, uh, you know, and, and at that time, I didn't even do it in books. I just did it in seminars. So I recorded it or video. See, back, I'll age myself all of a sudden. Back when I ran my tapes and DVDs, well, back before that, the VCRs, holy heck. You know, and so it was just getting that knowledge base down so that I could then replicate and help other people do the same thing. And um, when I expanded to Asia, uh, I went to the franchising model uh, because you needed that local knowledge base, that local cultural understanding of business. And you combine that with the business principles that we teach and you could have success. And so whereas in Australia and New Zealand, we started by employing everyone. Eventually, we went to franchising there as well. But um, now, yeah, we just, uh, we're just opening in Greece. So I think that's country number 82 or 83 for us. Oh, nice. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. I know that a lot of my listeners are solopreneurs or entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. um, as coaches, consultants, and trainers, and some other service professionals. And of course, they're not looking at growing typically their businesses to become mm. franchises, but still they're looking for the right people to do business with. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about your ideal franchise owner, 
and they think about their ideal clients, what are some of the common traits that you would say you want to look for or that you look for? In other words, what are your criteria for deciding you're a good match, but this person over here is not? Number one thing we look for in our coaches, our franchise partners who run the, the, the operations, because most of our partners don't actually do coaching. They run the coaching business and they employ coaches. Gotcha. Okay. So for the coaches, even for our partners, our number one criteria is they love helping people. That's the number one thing we look for. It's not background. It's not financials. It's not ethnicity. It's not disc profile or anything. It is purely down to do they love helping people? Because if there is a love of helping others, we know we can make sure they succeed. Um, then when it comes to the ideal clients, there's multiple things that we look for in ideal clients. But if I was to boil it down to say the top three, number one is they have to want to go somewhere. Um, if, if they're, you know, it's the old lead a horse to water, can't make them drink. Well, you can lead a human to knowledge. You can't make them think. Um, it has to be someone who has a desire to move. Now, some of them have the desire to move from a negative to a positive. Others have the desire to move from good to great type thing. We prefer the good to greats, but you can't get the good to greats unless you start with the, you know, the drowning business and turn them into a business that at least has a boat now type thing. Sometimes you've got to help the, the drowning ones uh, get into a boat and then move them through. Um, we like to take them through that whole process. Uh, you know, our, our coaching is not just about fixing their business. It's about their dreams and goals becoming a reality. And so, you know, that's a lifelong pursuit. I think the second thing that we look for is people who are coachable. Um, you know, there are a lot of business owners out there who need help, who are so pig headed that, uh, Marshall Goldsmith said it to me best. He said, uh, the best business coach in the world is the one who's the best at picking clients. So by picking the right clients, you become an amazing coach. Marshall, I, I think he, he, he's, we, we, we once did a video on, uh, you know, coaching is not just for losers anymore, meaning there was a point in time where it was oh, you're, failing. Yeah, you're failing, you need a coach, mm -hmm. to where it's now moved to, hey, this person's doing well, we need to invest in having a coach for this person. They're, they're doing very well in our organization. That's sort of the executive coaching side of it. Uh, and then the third thing that uh, we would look for mostly in our clients is that their business is a sustainable type business. Um, you know, we, when you look at, but th that being said, see, when Ireland can't ban smoking in all the pubs, all the pubs went into panic. We coached a lot of them through how to become great businesses without smoking. You know, when butcher shops became very rare and everyone didn't want to eat meat and they're all going vegan and all this sort of stuff. Well, now we've coached a lot of butcher shops to do amazing business now and become culinary delight to, to their customer base. So sometimes that, that rule, I guess, we, can, we have to adjust because there's movements in the market where you need to shift an entire generation of business people into a different way of thinking. Um, tradesmen, you know, I love, I love coaching tradespeople because, uh, well, very simply put, first goal is retire the boots, you know, retire the boots and start wearing normal shoes to work. So you don't actually have to have steel cap boots anymore. And, and they're like, well, that means I wouldn't be on the tools. Yes, that's <laughs> what it would mean. Uh, but um, yeah, I think ultimately the, the, the main thing with clients is that they've got somewhere to go. 
You know, they know where they want to go or they, uh, they do have, they're sick of where they're at and they want to go somewhere different. So they're already motivated to mm -hmm. want to do something different. Great. Yeah. Thank you. So another question I have for you that, that because you have personally worked with so many business owners mm -hmm. and my audience is mostly business owners, what are uh, maybe one or two things that they tend to do that get them into trouble, that cause problems or mistakes that they make? And yep. how do you help them? Because my guess is the things you've encountered with all of your clients are the same kinds of things my listeners struggle with. Yeah. I think number one is they don't act like business owners. They act like employees in their own business or they act like technicians in their own business. You know, when I, as a business person, I have a definition of a business. A business is a commercial profitable enterprise that works without you. And so what I'm teaching these business owners is how to build something that actually is a saleable asset. See, if you're a business owner, you understand that you're an investor, you're building a, a business that can be sold at some point. If you're just an employee in your own company, you're looking at the cash flow and just making yourself a wage from a different source than if you did it with someone else. So it's a, you're trading in a wage that someone else is in control of to a wage that you're in control of. And jokingly, but not really jokingly, I often say, you know, if you have to go to work in your own business, you work for a lunatic. Um, you know, and that, that to me is kind of like the, the craziness of business people. And I, I once put a quote out there, which Richard Branson borrowed and put on one of his blog posts, uh, which was entrepreneurs are the crazy people who work 80 hours a week for themselves. So they don't have to do 40 hours a week for someone else. And, um, and I, I and I go through the whole thing of the hustle and grind mentality that we have today. And you still hear this from all of the online gurus of hustle and grind. And I'm like, I did that in the beginning of my business, but I didn't realize in the beginning that the hustle and grind covered up the mistakes in my business. The, the 20 hours or the 10, 15 hours a day I was doing was covering up that there were gaps in my business and the things that I didn't understand and couldn't build. So I had to shift that, that thinking. But I think if you first of all understand that your job is to be a business owner first and a technician or a professional or a whatever second, um, you start looking at it. And that's uh, one of the things when we get to strategy in the, in, uh, through the book, where we start to learn about leverage and my, my definition of leverage is do the work once and get paid forever. And so it's a balancing act or a challenge with that. Second thing I would say business owners do wrong is they're too cheap. Um, they price themselves down to what they can sell rather than learn how to market and, and sell up to the price they should be charging. You always want to be the best in the business. You always want to be the best in the industry. If I was going to be a pool builder, I don't want to do 2,000 cheap pools. I want to do 200 of the best pools in the city. Why? Three reasons. Number one, if I'm building the best pools in the city, I only have the best customers because the people that can afford me are only the people that can afford me. I mean, that, that's sort of the simplest way you can put it. And so if I'm building a pool that's worth $2 million, then the person that can buy my pool isn't really going to be one that haggles over small little things. They're not going to be that, that nasty, hard customer. They're going to be a great customer. The second reason is when you get the best, when you are the best, the best of the best want to work with you. You know, if I'm the best pool builder in town, 
anyone that wants to work with the best pool builder knows, oh, you've got to go and work with them because they're the best in town. And so I think you get the best employees if you have the best business in town, not only the best customers, but the best employees. And the third reason I think you want to be the best is because the, the caliber of people you meet is different. The caliber of people you get to work with. It's like, if I wanted to be the coach, I don't want to be a coach working with people who are struggling every day. I want to be a coach working with people who are doing 10 million that want to go to a hundred million. You know, it's a different form of thinking of caliber mm -hmm. type of business. And I think a lot of us get caught up in that price competitive nature and think that price is the be all and end all. Whereas if price is part of price is always going to be a part of the decision-making process. But if it's more than five or 10%, then your marketing and your sales and your niche and the, and the differentiation of you to others has been missed. And what I think you're talking about there is really the person's mindset related to pricing um, in, in terms of their own value um, and what they think and believe people will pay Oh yeah, especially their, in the, especially coaching, consulting, you know, oh my goodness, all of that head trash that goes on with people about, oh, I'm not sure I can afford, they can afford me or this sort of thing. Don't worry about whether or not they can afford you. Just be great at what you do and the people that can't afford you will find you. Mm -hmm. you know, if you're great at it and um, you know, the number of coaches who struggle with it. And I, when coaches join me at Action Coach, I tell them very clearly, listen, my system is worth 2000 a month. Even if you just work my system with people, that's worth 2000 a month. Now, if you're any good, you'll charge more than that. But my system is worth that. So don't go lower than what my system is worth. And so I think it helps people a lot when they have a, when they're part of a group that says to them, don't ever go below this point. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's important. That is great. Well, one of the things I want to jump into with the book are these five disciplines that mm -hmm. you talk about because they are relevant to other questions that I was thinking of. So t why don't you give us what the five are and a brief definition of them? Okay. So first and foremost, the book is all about exponential growth, not about growth one year and plateau and dip and that sort of thing. It's about year on year on year, multiple growth. So it's about changing the mindset from percentages to multiples, changing the mindset from a 10% growth to a 10 times or 30% growth to 30 times growth. And I think that's even the numbers I use in the book is to challenge people. Because when I challenge someone and say, how would you get, how could you get your business to be 30 times larger next year than it is this year? Most of them look at me like I'm strange or weird or crazy or something along those lines. And I said, no, you need to contemplate this question because if you don't, if the biggest question you ask yourself is how do I get 30% growth next year? Guess what the maximum growth next year you can have is 30%. You know, I ask business owners, what's your strategy for opening in India? And they look at me like I'm weird, you know, because, and again, I say to them, listen, this is the highest growth, most millennials, uh, biggest, probably biggest economy by 2040, 2030 something in the world. What are you doing for that? And they, they, they just don't think. So it leads us to the disciplines. Now, we, the reason we use disciplines is because you don't get this right and then you stop. Business is not where, oh, we got that right. Now we don't ever have to worry about that again. Yes, the systems and processes you put in last year, they probably won't work this year because technology's changed, people have changed, trends have changed, things have changed, et cetera, et cetera. 
First is uh, the discipline of strategy, getting the right corporate strategy or the right structure of the business, the right model of business to go forward. Second is business development, which is your sales, marketing, and customer service and how those work. And they're pretty easy if you've got a business that isn't growing, but if you are in a high growth business, then that's different. You know, when you're Subway sandwiches and you're opening five new stores a day somewhere in the world, your sales, marketing, and customer service have to be entirely different to Bob's Subway store down the road that is just trying to get new customers for his business, but he's already got a thousand of them. So, you know, getting one or two is good and losing one or two is okay. So it's different. Then there's the third is people. Um, you know, you don't build your business, you, your people do. So you've got to look at how do I recruit, hire, train, manage, coach, lead great people and, and retain great people in my company. The fourth is execution. This comes down to your planning, your systemization. How do you get the job done that you've all planned on doing? Uh, and then the fifth is mission. Mission is all about the word love. How do you get people to love buying from you and customers to, to love keep coming back? And how do you get your staff to love coming to work? You know, it's what's the mission of the organization over and above just making money? And I really loved your focus on that with mission, not the mm. traditional boring mission statement, but <laughs> something that's really like living and breathing mm -hmm. that everyone uh, from the top down really buys into and lives mm -hmm. by. It, yeah. it, it's sort of a combination of values that you have adopted, mm -hmm. but more than just saying we've adopted these, you live them in the mm -hmm. way they treat each other and they treat the people who do business. And the suppliers and the bankers and your, and your community and yeah. all of these different constituents that we go to. You know, it, it's real interesting who you are and why you do what you do in business today is more important than it's ever been before. The millennial generation, which is now here in the US, almost a third of the entire workforce and globally growing at exponential rates as we age out, this, this workforce and this group of people, they don't want to work for companies that are just making money. They want to work for companies that are doing good things, that are building the environment, the community, and doing great work. We see Tom's Shoes, buy one, they give one to charity. We see, uh, minus the sock company, buy one, we give one to charity. You know, we see, and, and if you go back in history, this all started with a wonderful lady by the name of Anita Roddick who started the body shop and was the first real mission-based business that took on a mission to change things and to change the way the world did business. And I think she led such an amazing revolution that today, you know, mission-based businesses, you can go on apps today and look up a company's, who is the corporate owner of this company and see what is their environmental giving policy. You can go on apps today and look up the carcinogen level of products for companies. This is who we are becoming as a society. And if your mission is not about more than just making money, don't expect great customers, don't expect great employees. This is not the way business is going to be done going forward. Now, fortunate or unfortunate, the baby boomer generation, we're a generation that grew up with, you know, uh, where poverty had been a reality, where lack of resources was a reality, where you had to fix everything. And you know, that generation could think for themselves. That generation could learn and didn't need to be told why to do anything. They were just told, hey, do this job. And they did it. They figured out how to do it themselves. They got it done. And, and that was the thing. But 
generationally we've shifted. My generation, Gen Y, dang, we were the first generation not to darn our socks, uh, didn't fix our jeans. Uh, in fact, we ripped more holes in the jeans back then in the 80s, I think, than, than anybody else. So, yeah, mission is vital today. What do you find to be the most effective ways for business owners to communicate and I guess infuse that sense of mission with all those different constituents that you were just mentioning, besides, you know, having it on your website, that's mm. kind of obvious, but yeah, yeah. Having the sign I'm on the wall <laughs> about really spreading the feeling and the sense of, of, people believing that you really believe and live by this. Well, I think it comes back to how you make decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, it comes down to, well, hang on, will that get us closest to our mission? Will that help us achieve what we're aiming to achieve? Or will that, you know, what is that going to do for us mission-wise? Is it going to get us further down the road? Um, I, I, as the chairman of my company, am very clear that every time I have our team get-togethers, any conferences, anything, the first thing I do is talk about the vision of the company. World abundance through business re-education. What does that mean to us? Why did I start the company that way? What are we aiming to achieve with that? I go through our 14 points of culture and, you know, espouse those and help people rate themselves as to where they're playing at on their points of culture. And are they doing a great job or an average job? I think it, it's not something, and if it is something you put on the wall, I, I test companies like this. Get every single person in your company to uh, tell me the vision of your company word for word, straight off the cuff. And most of them can't do it. Why? Because it's not who they are. You know, recruiting, see, this is the thing. We don't recruit, first of all, recruiting is based on our vision and our mission and our culture. And if anyone wants to see that, uh, there are videos on YouTube of me doing that, 20 minutes each of our culture of our company and describing it. So any new employee that joins any one of our thousands of offices around the world, they can join and learn the culture of our company direct from me, straight there, right there and then. They can see the history of our company. I tell, in 20 minutes, I tell the history of our company, what we've gone through, where we started. Because if an employee doesn't know where you started as an organization, if they can't see a photograph of the first office or the first uh, desk or the first store, how do they respect where you're at right now? You know, when you're doing hundreds of millions a year, the person that joins you today, if they don't know that, hey, this business started, in the single back bedroom of a family house on a desk that used to be Brad's schoolboy desk, you know, that he'd moved out. If they don't know that stuff, how do they respect this organization? I think it's gotta be, there's no easy way to communicate this. There's no easy way to make it happen. It just has to be in every piece of communication the, the leadership team of the company has. It has to be there every day. I love that. That's Wonderful. And even for someone that doesn't have employees that maybe works with just contractors, that mm -hmm. still is important to convey, you know, contractors who, have who to want to. Oh, yeah. You've hit the nail on the head there because if you hire contractors and do not go through the whole teaching them your culture and your ethics and the way you do business and what you stand for, you'll end up having fights with them because you don't stand for the same things. Even strategic alliance partners in business. You've got to stand for the same things. Otherwise, no one does business well together long term. Well, I'm going to go out of order because you were mentioning something around the people side mm -hmm. that um, I was thinking about because on that side, that's, of course, what our business really focuses mm. on is uh, assessing and developing 
your your people, your human mm-hmm. capital is so important. I don't even like using that phrase, human capital, when I think about it, because it kind of takes you away from the the people. But this this uh, comment you made earlier about um, you don't develop your business, you develop your people, and they build the business. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about what you mean by that. Well, there's, there's multiple ways to approach this, but I'm going to start with where I had to learn this lesson. I think I was 20 or 21 years old. I went to my dad and I said to him, dad, I don't know why I just can't get good people. And he looked me dead in the eye. My dad is an extraordinarily blunt man. He said, Brad, you get the people you deserve. You're an average manager running an average business. The highest caliber of employee you're going to get is average. <laughs> so they go, wow, thanks for the motivation, dad. You really got me excited there. But he was right though, you know, and, and the thing about business is very, very simple. If you want to build a great business, you have to have great people. You know, a business isn't built on one person alone. A business is built on all the people. So we have a firm policy of hire good and build great you know, because you've got to do, you know, you don't want to hire average and build great. You want to hire good and build great. You don't want to hire less than average because you can control them. A lot of business owners make that mistake too. There's another one to add to the list where they hire people that are not as good as them. You now I, I did a, I do a social media each, each week. I do a couple of videos called drive time and I did one on recruiting great people the other day. And one of the key factors on recruiting is to remember it is recruiting, not hiring. You actually should treat it like a sports team does. You want, you want people who've got a job and you need to recruit them to come and work for you. There's none of this, oh, let me check all of the people who got fired last week and see which ones I want to work for me. No, you want people that have already got a job. But the other point that I, I raised on that, on that drive time was you've got to hire people who are overqualified. Because if you hire people who are just qualified and your business is growing, in six months, they're going to be underqualified. You want to hire someone who at least is two years ahead of where your business is so they can help take you there. When it comes to the humans in your organization, um, very simply put, people are either your greatest asset or your biggest pain in the backside. And if they're not your greatest asset, then you need to look at what are you doing from the beginning? How are you recruiting? How are you inducting? How are you training your people? Because it kills me the number of business owners that don't want to train their people. It's like, hang on a second. And actually, I remember I was in, uh, in Ireland giving a seminar and I was teaching about training your people. And this guy waves his hand up the back and he's like, but Brad, anytime I train my people, they leave. And I said, yes. And anytime you don't, they stay. <laughs> and he looked at me like, yeah, I want them to stay. I said, no, no, you want them to get better and stay. He said, but if I train them, they leave. I said, well, good. Train them so they can leave, but run a great company so they don't want it. You know, and it's a big difference in, in the mindset of that. You know, very simply put, I teach it that you as the owner, your job is to build the team. That, see, how you take care of the team determines how they take care of the customer. How they take care of the customer determines how well the customer takes care of the business, which determines how well the business takes care of you. So your job, take care of the team. They take care of the customer. The customer spends a lot, keeps coming back. Business takes care of you. Um, Yeah, we could spend hours on this subject. I love the subject of humans. And I will say human capital because I want people to think of them as an investment. You know, think of your people as an investment. You have to keep investing in them if you want them to keep performing better. Excellent. Yeah, that whole aspect of of investing in development. And to me, that's another aspect of millennials. 
that I've picked up is that they want opportunities to grow, learn, mm -hmm. and develop. And so they're looking for employers that support that kind of growth. Yeah, look, the, 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 if you sit down today and you ex examine the businesses that are growing, it's the ones that keep growing their people. It's, it's no more complex than that. If you don't want to grow your people, then don't expect the business to grow. No one can outperform their training. If I've only ever trained to run a four-minute mile, that's the most I can do. If I want to do better than that, I've got to train better than that. Well, Same let's, look at, let's look at, I think it was strategy you were talking about where that contrast of working in the business versus on the business, working long hours. And I want to use you as an example because I remember when we spoke before and you said you only work two days a week mm -hmm. and you work nine to three so that you have plenty of time with your five children. Mm -hmm. And as I was listening to you say that, I thought, wow. I don't know if any of my listeners or very few of them have that luxury in terms of where they've built their business. So talk a little bit about how do you get to the point where you're able to do that? So firstly, I, I don't see it as a luxury. I see it as a discipline. So it's a discipline to know where you value your time and what you value your time in. And that's outside of business, but sort of inside of coaching, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So from day one, um, when you approach business, the strategy you use will be either a strategy that makes it work more as you get bigger or work less as you get bigger. So if, if I look at strategy, there's, there's four main core points to strategy. Leverage being one, which I mentioned my definition, do the work once, get paid forever, or at least long term. Hence why I write books, you know, my book on real estate. So uh, why do I buy real estate? I buy a house once, I collect rent forever. I, I write a book once, I get paid for it forever type thing. If the business core product doesn't have leverage, if the business is, if you get a customer once and then they buy from you and you lose them and you've got to go and get another customer, then there's no leverage in your core product or service. You've got to get them and keep them if you want leverage in your core product or service. Um, Second part is what we call scalability. And that my definition in there is, again, pretty simple. It's that the next sale costs less and is easier. If the next sale, if it's harder to make the next sale, if it costs a lot more, it's like when I had a rental business, renting out fridges, freezers, TVs, white and brown goods, basically. The first refrigerator took a lot of work to get that rented out. The hundredth, it was easier and cheaper than the first one. The thousandth, much easier, much cheaper than even the hundredth one. And so as we built more and more and more of them out there, it got easier and cheaper the, the whole way around. Uh, third being opportunity size. If you want a great strategy, you're not going to do business in a market that there's only a million in total revenue in the in, entire thing and there's six competitors in it. You, you're not going to build a massive business there. Um, and then fourth is, is marketability. Does the product or service sell itself? Do people automatically go looking for it? It's like I live here in Las Vegas and... Zappo shoes who are down the road and I know my wife just had a delivery from them so that's why it comes to mind but when you sit and look at it people buy shoes they always buy shoes they're always going to buy shoes we all wear shoes we all want shoes it's not that hard to just sell your shoes better than the next person and do a better service or a better quality or a better way of distributing it so those four points come to strategy and if I could tie it all together with one simple story it would be the story of uh, Apple. So Apple computers, when they first started out, their strategy was flawed. It was fundamentally flawed. They were a computer manufacturer. You make a computer once, guess how many times you can sell it? Once. 
you know, and not only that, they sold it with software included. So they sold it with an intrinsic debt to keep updating the software for the buyer. Um, whereas at the other end of Silicon Valley, you had Microsoft made a piece of software once, sold it as many times as they wanted. Didn't even, Apple made a great computer. Microsoft arguably made awful software in the beginning, you know, but that was the way they worked. Bill Gates goes on to become the richest person in the world. Steve Jobs gets fired from Apple because the strategy had no leverage. You know, you, you make a computer once and sell it once. It's, there's no leverage in that. Now, fast forward, Steve Jobs goes and runs a little company called Pixar, sells it to Disney for billions. What did he make? Movies. What did he learn to do? Well, first he learned management and leadership because he had to learn that. And the, the, the stories of how much he'd grown from when he started to left was, was totally different. But he learned leverage. Make a movie once and sell it forever and ever. Disney bought the rights of it all and hey, presto, Disney, they're a genius at leverage. That is probably the most genius company in the world. You want to study a genius company? Mm -hmm. Disney Corporation. Talk about scalability and leverage and marketability and opportunity. In how many ways does that company sell the mouse? You know, and that's, it's amazing how many different ways they can, can leverage one character into billions of sales. But Steve Jobs came back to Apple and he said, hang on, we need to be in a business where there's leverage. So he took them straight into the music business. He went and basically, I mean, he didn't really even have to invent anything. Napster already had invented iTunes or a model of iTunes. Sony had already invented the MP3 player. All he had to do was get contracts with the music companies and hey, presto, he built this massive business. And it led to many other things for, for Apple where People think that Apple, what Apple sells is, is a phone. Well, they sell the phone for one reason. What do you buy on it? You buy the apps, you buy in-app purchases, you buy music, you buy TV shows, you buy... Now Apple's gotten even further of do the work once, get paid forever. Now it's a subscription service. You know, Apple TV has just come out for, what's that, $4.99 a month. Disney's their competitor, by the way. So there's the two geniuses going at it, Disney with... Disney TV and ESPN Plus and Hulu are their brands and Apple with Apple TV, now Apple Arcade, a subscription service gaming system. They're geniuses at understanding strategy, these companies. And I think a lot of business owners need to get that, and especially a lot of consultants and coaches. They need to understand that to help companies grow exponentially. And I think that getting your book would be a wise investment for them because you give so many examples in your book of that that we just don't have time to, to cover today. In fact, you're the best, Meredith. Thank you for plugging the book. For the <laughs> well, I got the Kindle of it. Thank you for holding <laughs> it up. Yes. Uh, the, see, the Kindle, this, this one's 2.7 pounds. It's 297 pages. It's a full color. We, we, we made a decision with this book to include everything so that people didn't and that's what you said there's so many examples because it was like i could teach all the principles and write it in a hundred pages and be but i want you to get the meat on the bones not just the bones well and the reason it's so many pages it's not daunting mm. because you know you've got lots of white space but it, it just reads so easily you know Good. it's very I'm glad accessible. And mm. so I think that that's a real strength. So I want to just repeat the title there. Thank you to my editors, uh, to Monty and my editors for that, because <laughs> both of us are great speakers. But when it comes to typing, I was one of those kids in school that the teacher said, no, if I went back and told my English teacher I've published 17 books, I think she would have a heart attack. <laughs> well, yes, editors are very helpful. So pulling profits out of a hat. 
-hmm. adding zeros to your company isn't magic. I love the story you started with too, with the magician and, and the audience and, and how he did things. But I think overall, recommend that they get the book to get more. But I think that you're, that, that I love the point that you just made that the role of someone who's in that coach or consulting profession is to be of service to that client. Mm -hmm. And when they're hearing the client describe an issue or a problem, there may be an insight the coach or consultant got from some other resource that they had referenced that would be of value to the person sitting in front of them at that moment. I, I know over the years, the number of times when, because I, most of my reading, I do it at night, um, and I would sit there and read. And then the next day in a coaching call with someone, it'd be like, oh, thank God I read that last night. If I hadn't have read that last night, I didn't have the answer. <laughs> you know, and, and I remember in the beginning always thinking, as long as I'm 1% ahead of them, as long as I'm a, a chapter ahead or something like that, because sometimes some of the business problems, some of the solutions, and I even know that some of the solutions for some of my clients came from others of my clients. You know, I would see what one client was doing. I, oh, Bob needs that, you know, to be like sure. those sorts of things. But, you know, in this age of, of learning, um, our biggest challenge is selecting where to learn and what to learn. And, you know, there's so many books and so much out there. And um, I know as this is my 17th work, uh, most of them on business, several of them on wealth and success. And the next one I'm working on is called The Life Coach. So that'll be an interesting one to have out there for the market. But, oh, yes. I'll be interested in seeing that. Well, for now, tell us how people can connect with you online and learn more about your service. Uh, whatever your favorite social media is, whatever your favorite social media is, you'll find me there, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, not Pinterest, though. Uh, I'm not that crafty. That's my wife. She's great with that stuff. Um, <laughs> or you can hit bradsugars.com or actioncoach.com. Um, but Amazon has all of my books as well. So... Uh, Audible has uh, several of them. The rest are being, we've, we've, uh, yeah, they're all going to be there. So, um, yeah, come join me on LinkedIn or Facebook. And every every couple of days, I do a video so uh, people can come and learn from me all the time. That's great, Brad. You're just such a, a treasure trove of practical um, experience and knowledge from all your years of working in the trenches yourself as a business owner, but then also all you've learned from all the clients you've worked with. So thank you so much for being with me today. And I appreciate the way you show up in the world to deliver such value to others. Meredith, I think I'm going to replay that uh, every day for the next week, just to remind myself of how good I am in Meredith's world. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> Well, you are so welcome. And I'd love to have you back on when your new book is out so we can go deeper. Fantastic. Actually, we could even go into the one that I just put out called uh, The Wealth, uh, Wealth Coach, which I wrote for people to be able to teach their kids money. Um, because oh. I found that now that I have, because I have five kids, teaching my kids money becomes a full-time job. And so I wrote this book and I gave it to one of my friends. He said, Brad, I can't teach this to my kids. I said, why not? He said, I don't know any of this stuff. Can you rewrite the book? So it's both adults and kid friendly. <laughs> so oh. I, had to, I had to write it in such a way that adults could learn wealth as well. Cause wealth is such an elusive subject to so many people, but it is actually relatively simple. Oh, I would love to discuss that with you. 
So that sounds great for a future conversation. Thank Perfect. you, Brad. You're awesome. And that is Brad Sugars, S-U-G-A-R-S dot com. And we'll have links to your books as well as your website on our show notes page. Thanks for tuning in to the Strong for Performance podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com to learn how our tools can increase your impact with clients and expand your business. And while you're there, grab our free ebook, The Five Secrets to Getting Better at Anything. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell. Make it a great day.